Welcome back, Rebels. Adam, it's very important that you understand that niches make riches. Niches definitely make riches, and riches are the road to wonder. Uh, for those who don't know what a riche is, um, this is a take on the American phrase, niches make riches, which they do. Yeah, obviously in the UK, we say niche instead of niche. Um, and so the the phrase does not work nearly as well, but um, niches do make riches. So um, we were giving a talk the other day and we were really talking about the importance of narrowing down on your on your niche and, and not trying to just sort of like scattergun and hit everyone. It's easy when you're first starting in some form of creative passion, some business or anything, that you're just like, oh, I can work, go and work anywhere because it's like, I've got this skill. All these people could use my skill. So I'm just going to say, hey, everyone, I've got this skill, come and use me. And then, yes, you might kind of get used in different areas. It's not really a way to grow a sustainable career because if you just keep doing that forever, you're never really going to be seen as the expert at anything. It's just, oh, this person can be hired to do this. And I suppose that's where it falls under that kind of Fiverr, just like bod for hire kind of category rather than someone who's an expert and I want them for what they do. Yeah, to to specialise in the thing that you do is is such an important um, differentiation from the from the competition because if I am looking to hire someone to do a specific task and I see that they do a number of things as opposed to the one person that charges more for the thing that they do but it's only that thing that they do, just psychologically I am more likely to make that it feels like a safer choice it feels like less of a gamble to go with the esteemed expert who specializes in one thing and I think you can easily make a career by just doing everything if that's what you want to do but I think that's going to be a much harder route it's going to be more stressful it's going to be a lot more uncertain than doing it the other way and and also in terms of your of your like your passion just yeah. doing a bunch of stuff. I mean, I know there are people who are like, oh, but I love this and I love this and I love this. But but for me, like getting my mindset from one space to another space is like takes a, a lot of doing. Um, and just just being able to really, really focus down on one thing and then and then start to get really good at that thing and see your style develop within that thing. And just just to see that growth process for me is like really, I don't know. I mean, everyone's different, but for me, I just think that's such an important thing. Yeah, and I think like, everyone likes things differently like there'll be certain things that you like more and you like other things so I think like when you very very first get started it is good to just try lots of different things because then you're going to realize what out of all those things you enjoy the most like I'm getting lots of emails at the moment from something that I must have signed up to a while ago um that basically it sends me an email every time someone's looking for a photographer and you can open it and it's kind of obviously something that someone's filled in somewhere and they're like okay I want a photographer for a party it's in this location uh this is how many edits I want this is the form of thing that I want it back in and I I don't remember signing up to it but I'm like okay this there's so many getting sent to me every day like and I imagine every single other photographer who signed up to this thing must be getting all the same ones as well so I imagine that's like a everyone's pitching for these same jobs and I just know that if you went down that route of just trying to take those jobs, you're in a much more competitive environment because I know if I'm receiving that and I don't even remember signing up for this service, that there's loads of other people who are looking for work who are already on this service, who are already just pitching for it. And imagine that's where it becomes a bit of a race to the bottom in terms of the costing, because I know if I'm on the other side of that, because I've done that before where um, I've hired builders through websites where it's like you put a quote up or an idea of what you want to do up and they'll bid for it. And then you'll, I 
generally pick someone who's got a good review and is the cheapest. And I'm not going to that person because they're an absolute specialist in that. I'm going to them because they're cheap. They provide what I need. It's quick, easy, and affordable. But I think as a creative, you don't want to fall into that quick, easy, affordable category. You want to be someone that comes someone comes to because they're the best at what they do, because they're a specialist in that area, because they have more experience in doing that thing. Like if I'm hiring someone for something specific and I'm like, hey, well, this is a creative brief I have. I could just get someone who dabbles in everything to do this, or I can get this person who is an absolute specialist who has the exact aesthetic that I'm looking for for my brief. Like that person's going to win every time. That person's also going to charge so much more. And if you can charge more, then it just makes your life so much easier because you have to do less in a year to actually hit what you need. So it's like you can spend all of your time scrambling around trying to get the jobs or you can be someone that people come to you because your style, the area you're hitting is so specific that they know you're going to be the best person to do that. I remember chatting to uh, a friend of ours who um, has d- does a lot of kind of business stuff around tea, um, cut like cups of tea. And yeah. I was encouraging her forever to write on her Instagram bio that she was a tea expert Um and she would not do that because of the other tea experts in the field who have been doing things longer than her. And my argument was, you are still a tea expert. Like, you don't have to be the number one. Like the like you can still say you yeah. are an expert because you know so much more about Oolong than I do. And that's, <laughs> that's what matters. Um, so I think a lot of people listening to this are probably like a bit reluctant to say to say that they're an expert, to um, to have the audacity to actually put it out there that they are good at something. And I think that's an obstacle that everyone really needs to get over is, is say you're good at something, say that that's your field, um, even if you're not the best in that field. So so the way that you refer to yourself is really important. So even if it's, even if it's I am a headshot photographer rather than I am a photographer, already yeah. that niches you down and it says, I, I know straight away what you do. And then if you're more confident, you can say uh, redefining headshots or reabandoning, do you know what I mean? Just like something like the expert in in headshots, like whatever it might be that, that just conveys to people that you are the best. This kind of falls into what we've been talking about recently as well about peers and patrons, because I think where she didn't want to declare herself as an expert, that was because she's comparing herself to her peers and I think that's what problems so many creators have is they start comparing themselves to their peers they don't think about what the patrons think because we talk about that all the time especially when it comes to like perfectionism that's one thing that I always think peers and patrons is a really good way to think about it because yes your peers if you put something out that's 95% of what you can do your peers might notice but at the end of the day it doesn't really matter what they think it's what your patrons think and the patrons who the people who are supporting you who aren't who don't do that craft probably they're not going to notice a difference between 95% and 100% so that's why it's really important to remember who your audience is remember who you're targeting because you're not targeting the people in your industry your peers well you could be but there's a good chance that you're not you do need to think about what are the people who are actually following me who might pay for my service might buy my service might employ me what will they think of this because I think that's the route that we need to take it rather than just what our peers are thinking. And certainly when you're building your following in the beginning, so much of that is going to be your your peers. I see it in a lot of Facebook groups um, for artists that do these kind of follow for follow trains. And for me, it's it's completely useless. It's like, 
Well, it's not useless because, I mean, obviously your peers can give you good feedback and it's nice to have the support and it's nice to have the likes. But at the end of the day, if you're a painter and you're in one of those Facebook groups and you're doing a follow for follow with everyone, how many of those artists are actually going to buy your artwork? I mean, probably they don't have that much disposable income. It's probably like they they probably have a million of their own canvases like clogging up their their space. The way that you're going to be able to turn your passion, your your hobby, your creative endeavor into a career rather than a hobby is by having people that are willing to give you cash for that and most of the time that's not going to be the people that do the same thing as you because they're just going to say well I could do that myself so I I recently saw uh, a connection that I have on LinkedIn who's um, started a podcast for essentially for accountants or finance people and it's only aimed at other accountants and finance people which is fine however they don't offer any services to other accountants and finance people. So it's almost like an echo chamber of the the people that are going to be listening to that podcast that might be getting really valuable information from it, but are they ever going to purchase from that person who's who's portraying themselves as an expert in that field? It, it may trickle down to where clients see it and say, oh, well, they've got a podcast, so they must know what they're talking about. Yeah. But how how much actual real sort of business is is that gonna um return to and and i i su- suppose probably people listening to this will be wondering about our business model which um like we're completely transparent about so um the way that this podcast um pays for itself is that we don't patronize you guys so we want to help you guys as much as possible um and by doing that we've built uh, quite a, a substantial audience of listeners um, and that's how we were able to do things like the adobe partnership that we did last year by having this podcast and establishing ourselves as experts in creativity and in business we've been booking lots of sort of gigs that you guys have have actually put us forward for which we very much appreciate um at certain brands for doing co- consultancy and um and sort of paid talks for for those businesses so so whilst it would seem that we are doing what we're saying like making making a podcast for people who are never actually going to pay for our services there's a large enough percentage of listeners who actually do hook us up with with those paid gigs so it makes this podcast very worthwhile for us to to do on, on the other side of that is obviously our passion is helping creatives and that's like what we're on the planet to do it's just we do actually have to make that business viable as well yeah i think that's that's the important thing isn't it it's working out how you can if you're going to spend lots of time doing something and starting a podcast starting a business at the end of the day we're trying to turn it into a profitable entity and i think that is what you need to think about it's thinking of like well if i hit this audience what can i then sell them or how can i use this audience to generate some form of income and it's like in the example that you gave there about the accountant it's it's like if that accountant doesn't currently have any services that can be sold to other accountants is that a plan going forward i think it's like having that vision of like well what could this become where could this lead to like we were doing public talks before we even started the podcast so we realized that by having this podcast growing an audience becoming an expert in that space it would allow us to get more of the things that we know we can get paid for if your audience are only people outside of your industry and you're just targeting people in the industry then all you're doing is building your own ego within that industry it's not really benefiting the audience and I think that's what at the end of the day that's what your company your whatever you're doing needs to be able to do it needs to be able to benefit the people who are purchasing it and if it's not doing that then 
it's kind of pointless because you every bit of your effort should be in how can I help other people how can I enrich their lives in some way whether that's just you selling them a product and that's going to make their lives better or you're providing education or something for those people as an example when I think of photographers there's lots of photographers who will only target people within their own industry but then again if they're selling like kind of color packs and different things that photographers can use then that's completely fine or they're building an audience there that are of a group of photographers that they can then work with a brand who can sell to those photographers it's always thinking about like where where is everything connected so yeah so it's really important to think like if you're going to target people within your industry you need to be able to have some sort of form of service product or something you can provide them if you don't then you're probably appealing to the wrong people so it's looking at what you're doing currently who your current market is because also like if you have a current market if you already have an audience of people who are buying from you don't just start going to someone else or trying to find another market like you've proven something here that is working so benefit that audience and I think people are too quick to just try and find new audiences all over the place rather than actually look at the one they currently have and then think about how can I bring more value to these guys? The value is is such a key thing because yeah, the the more value pro- you provide, the more opportunities come to you. It's like it's the most beautiful part of business, and it's my it's my favorite thing. Is just yeah, is like by relentlessly giving, you will be so surprised at how much actually comes back to you. It's incredible. So we we were really thinking about this and and how kind of overwhelming it can be when you're first starting out. So we've kind of identified three sort of specific niche avenues so that it's easier to understand. Yeah, so the first of those being market, find your market, work out where they are, who is going to allow you to keep on doing the thing that you love doing. Number two is style, um, becoming really specialised, becoming really well known for the the thing that you want to be well known for. And the third one is skill, talent. Like it's um, it's sort of the the almost where you're so good that you can't be ignored where you start to tip into the mainstream yeah 100 percent. and i think going in that order as well is the most beneficial when you think about a career and how it will grow over the years and how the time you put into that you will see it slowly change from market to style to expertise as you go through so yeah so starting with market i think that's the kind of thing that anyone can do it's like when you first get started you probably won't have a style yet. You'll still be exploring that. Like, so style is something that comes over time. But market is something you can actually, you can go straight into. And I would generally recommend that people go for a market that they already have an interest in. So if you're, whatever your creative thing is, there's a good chance that you'll have other interests in the world. So say, for example, you're a watercolor painter and you really love food. Like, then maybe actually try and do watercolor paintings for the food industry. Maybe try and see if there's a market there. And I think what's always great to do as well is if you can find someone who's done that before and they've proven it, then it makes it so much easier because making a new market isn't impossible, but it can be harder. For example, if you're a watercolor painter and you want to target dentists, then actually you might struggle there. They might, I'm not saying it's impossible, but I can't think of a watercolor painter off the top of my head anyway who specifically targets dentists and whether that aesthetic would even look right for that industry. So it's almost making I, I sure- mean, I can't, I can't think of a watercolour painter. So when, when you can find something like that, where there's not a name that comes to, that instantly comes to mind, yeah. that means there's a blank space there that can be filled by someone, which is actually really valuable. So if you are a watercolour painter listening to this and you've realised that there's not that personality, that when someone thinks watercolour, because for everything, there is 
typically that one or two people that you think yeah. of when you when you when you conjure up that that profession yeah because like i always say to people when like with the graffiti as well anyway it's like when you say name one graffiti artist 98 percent of people will just say banksy straight away so it's like you want to be the banksy within your industry whatever it is that might be so yeah so if you don't know and i think this is where it's interesting when it comes to peers and patrons as well, because if you're a watercolor artist then who's listening to this then you're going to be like i know fucking loads of watercolor artists because that's the world that you're in but i think yeah. the important thing is is to get out of that world and into a different world where they don't know what you know because it's like if you go into a different market so if you go into the food industry as a great watercolor artist you might not be the best watercolor artist compared to the people who you know who people you follow online but if you go into the food industry and start painting amazing pictures of food with watercolor and start showing it to the right people in those industries then they're going to be like oh my god this is the best to them you're going to be the best watercolor artist and like that's amazing because as soon as they think that about you you're then going to get employed by them which is and then you're going to grow your reputation in that field and it's like you're going to be the go-to and they won't even think about you as a watercolor artist then they're going to come back and think you're the best artist in this field and i think the more we can do that within an industry that's why targeting a market is so powerful because you're getting out of the room where you're just one of many and you're putting yourself into a different room where you're the only person who specializes in that it reminds me of like so many times where we've done live art at events where we've been the only people who've been like we're in a different industry to everyone else in that room so we're suddenly the ones who are interesting in that room and it's so funny because it's like we would do live art everyone will come and talk to us and then if we finish it and they're just like oh you can just like hang around for a bit like network with some people everyone wants to come and talk to us because we're the ones who are different whereas we've been at other events that are more creative led things and it's just you're just one of many and no one cares that you're there so it's like be that one in the room that everyone's like oh that's interesting I want to go and talk to that person this is something new and exciting rather than just be yeah just kind of like drift and disappear into a crowd of people yeah it's something that this week's guest Lucy Werner does really well is that she puts herself into the rooms where creatives are um, she doesn't put herself in loads of PR rooms and she doesn't have a a podcast for PR executives and she doesn't get interviewed by PR magazine just just for her appearing on this podcast like she's she's talking to our entire audience who are all creatives and when if and when they need a PR expert who are they going to call most likely it's going to be Lucy. I was in a clubhouse room the other day for visual artists and who's the every single person in there is a visual artist who's yeah, the yeah. only PR expert. It's Lucy Werner. Who does everyone then go and follow because it's something completely different and she has a whole new skill set that none of them are fluent in. So it's yeah, it's it's being that it's it's finding a niche and being the the standout different person within that niche. And then I suppose the second part is style which will come slightly later in your journey, but the sooner you can get that narrowed down of like this is my aesthetic this is what I look like this is what I represent in what I do that's going to make things so much easier as well and I think we've talked about style quite a few times previously on the show and how important it is in in making you stand out it's making people want what you provide rather than just someone who offers a generic service I think like it's quite evident if you look at both of our work it's like there is a specific style there and people know what they're going to get it's like so much of building a relationship with a client is building trust and I think if they can look through your portfolio, look through your work, and it's like, well, I know if I work with them, it's going to look pretty much like these because that's what all of the other images look like. 
if your portfolio is so scattered that they look at it and be like, oh, well, I really like that one, but I really hate that one. Uh, I, I hope it doesn't end up like that. It's like you're already putting in someone's mind, like because they kind of say like you're only as good as the worst piece in your portfolio. And to different people, that worst piece is going to be different things. So it's narrowing down, having that focus about, firstly, the kind of things you actually enjoy doing, the kind of things you want to be making. And then making sure you're just showcasing those because you're going to get known for, again, so the same as you got known for being an expert in that market. It's like, if you get known for being an expert in just your aesthetic and the way things look, it's like, then there's a good chance that you're the only person who has that aesthetic. And then if you can mix the two of being like, this is the only person who has this aesthetic and you're the only person who works in this market, put those two together and it's suddenly like, that's double niche. And you've suddenly been like, okay, this is absolutely amazing. And then if there's a market for that, you're definitely going to get hired because your style is so specific. Your market is so specific. And it's like, we've just niched down so well that people know what we do and who we're for. And I think if someone can look at you, look, look at your account and they can say, this is for these people. And it looks like this, then it's like, you're on to a winner already. And then we can go into like the third part, which is just expertise, which again, like style kind of comes later on in the journey but it's like when you get to become so technically good i suppose this is where the technicality comes into it when you're technically the best person at doing that thing or you're in the top few percent people are always going to come to you just for the level of expertise you can provide there's certain people who you just look at their work and you're just like they are just phenomenal at this like their level of detail in that is insane how how have they done this amazing thing they're going to get employed because it has that wow factor. And I think as soon as you get to that level where people look at your work and they're like, wow, that's amazing. That's kind of like that third level that you're always going to get hired for that because it is so impressive. And if you can impress people, then there's always, always a market for that because that's what so much of industry and so much of influence is about is impressing people. So if you can do that on top of the style and on top of finding a market, like this is the way to succeed. It's by niching down by knowing what you're creating, who it's for, and then becoming the absolute best at that. Like that's the route to success. Yeah, as soon as you do get to that stage where you are an absolute expert at what you do, then it will just becomes a game of communicating that to the outside world. Um, and those that are able to do that well, those that create shareable content um, are just, just the winners. 100% they are the winners. They are the people who are living the dream life that you aspire to have. Um, and it is totally possible. It's just it's just a journey, as we always say. Um, so I really hope that that was, this is probably a longer intro than, than typical, but I hope there was some useful um, facts in there. Um, I, I think as a whole, this episode is uh, filled with just a million golden nuggets for you guys. Yes, yeah, absolute gems in this episode. So let's get into it. Yeah, Lucy Werner is a PR expert. So getting booked on podcasts, getting in different magazines, getting featured um, in all sorts of different types of media. She is the expert on how to do that. Um, I've I've read her book. It's it's a real kind of workbook of it's so practical. It's like it, it's not it's not really like mindset. It's just like this is how you do it. Um, and a lot of it comes down to organization, which I'm crap at, but um, but she she talks you through the stages and it's a really great book. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. Hi, Lucy. Hey, David. Welcome to the show. How's it going? Yeah, good. I'm actually, I normally ban people from saying this, but I'm genuinely excited to be here. Oh, thanks. Oh, 
you were on my kind of uh, wish list for a really long time. So yeah, I was chomping at the bit to chat to you guys. I think that you did, we get pitched at all the time and you came to us and said, I would like to be on your show. Um, but I think you did it in really the right way because here you are on our show. Uh, and I think that <laughs> yeah. we get pitched at so often in very, very annoying ways, often not by the actual person. So it was nice that you were the actual person, but often not by the actual person with a deck that I'm not going to read with like a big, long email with all of this stuff in it of here's what Bob would like to talk about on your show and all of this stuff. Um, <laughs> and it's just so formulaic. It's I, I mean, I guess if you Google how to appear on podcasts, there must be this sort of like template that people just follow. Generic template, and it's, yeah. it's so transparent that... You didn't do that at all. You just basically just became our mate. And then through becoming our mate, we were like, do you want to come on the show? Yeah, it was genuine stalking, but I genuinely <laughs> did. It was with like, it was genuine because I did actually think I would like to be mates with you guys. It's not just a case of, oh, I'm just going to pretend to be friends with them to get something from it. And I think that's where a lot of people make mistakes when it comes to podcast pitching. I think also like people just do stuff where they'll be like, oh, you've had my mate on, so do you want to have me on? Or they'll just write something really generic that you can tell is like, it's, it's kind of the same with all PR pitches really, where they all fail, where it'll be really generic and kind of not really tailored to your audience. So I can imagine after being on this podcast, if I share it to my audience, probably a bunch of people that are nothing to do with creative industry then might try and pitch to you and be like, I know Lucy Byrne. And you're like, oh, cringe, don't. Like, it's not right. That's what I always talk about when it comes to networking, because that's effectively what we're doing now, I suppose. It's like that form of networking. It's like going into a situation where you're not just trying to get something out of someone. You're going into it to start a relationship, to become friends. And I think that's a much more productive way, because then at the end of the day, you're going to be networking with people that you want to be friends with rather than just yeah. someone who it's like a one-sided, I just, I just want to get something out of you. Yeah, 100%. I think also as well for me, and I think we were chatting about this right at the beginning of the first lockdown, so March 2020, and you guys were suddenly live on Instagram all the time. And it, I was so excited about it because I was like, I kind of miss hanging out with boys for a bit. Like my Instagram channel had got a bit female insta hun centric and I was like <laughs> yeah. I kind of just I want to just broaden my network a bit and meet other creative business owners I don't necessarily want to meet more PRs or more marketing people or more branding people because that's what Adrienne does it's really nice to meet people that own a creative service business that's different to yours and compare skills and swap tips of the shop type thing so yeah for me it was kind of like I looked up to you guys and the the sort of respected businesses that you had and thought even if nothing else I could learn a lot from you in how you run your businesses yeah I think something we've we've sort of skirted around on on the show before because being two straight white men is probably something that like we should be careful how we approach but there can get to a stage where this like closed off this is for girls only can actually be restrictive in some ways like I do think that is absolutely great and it does have a place but there's becoming a real trend for like this is a podcast that only has females on it this is an instagram that only has female followers and it's only for females whereas like i think with this show we've definitely wanted to be like well this is for everyone because you can learn so much from so many different places yeah 100 percent. and you know what like don't get me wrong i think those 
those female founder networks are really important for so many reasons, but it's not my calling. Like for me, I'm more about championing equality across all marginalized groups. That's where I sort of like really care about the work that we do. So yes, I'm kind of into like the female founder groups and I want to support other women in business. Absolutely. But I'm more sort of inspired to help black British business owners, for example, mm. than women. Um, and that's, you know, I think there's, there's so many um, marginalized groups that need support out there. And I also think part of that for me was probably becoming a mum for the second time. And I was looking at other women who were having children at the same time as me and almost not not quite pitting myself against them, but gravitating towards them because I wanted people who were going through that same experience. And then actually you kind of realize that we all run our businesses differently and actually having a child around the same time isn't necessarily what you think you think you're going to be in, in like have things in common with them because of that but actually mm. I might have more in common with you guys with who've got no children than I first thought when I was moving towards those sort of group yeah I think that's really interesting because it's basically it's basing people based on their characteristics rather than just the physical attributes that they've got because it's like just because someone has bought a house or just because someone owns this car it doesn't mean that we're going to get on necessarily like perfectly it's understanding those kind of commonalities between the two of you and I think as soon as you start to spot those that's when actual real friendships can form it's like just because you're yeah from the same place grew up in the same way it doesn't mean there's going to be those connections there mm -hmm. so I think it is really important to just kind of like reach out to people who you might not necessarily think this is exactly like me and just see if there's any common ground there because I think a lot can come from that and a lot of like the best relationships will form from going to find those bits of common ground rather than yeah just looking at the obvious yeah definitely I think when Clubhouse started uh, there was a point where there was me and Beth who um we met previously from Jolt me Beth and David were kind of on like a three-way chat being like where are all our people how do we find the nice people on Clubhouse <laughs> and I remember David told me to like stick with Amrit and the kind of the the creative crew there and now I'm in this really nice like Monday night group which is like a UK creative connect group and it's so nice for me to be in a room full of artists and visual 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 people <laughs> like just people who basically work in all like different creative spaces but it's not what I do and it's not a room I hate it when people go I'm on Clubhouse or I'm on Instagram or whatever social media platform to add value and it's like you don't if you're intentionally like adding value in inverting commas you're basically covertly selling like let's just be <laughs> real whereas I am there and if I think somebody could do with a PR tip I will tell them that I will actively give them advice I don't actively tell them to buy from me I might send them to a free download or I might tell them to buy my book but I wouldn't go up on stage if you like and say here's yeah. why you should buy my book in my intro but being in that like I've been in that room with you before and I think so obviously Clubhouse is is very wide and there's so many different places but the way that you stand out so well is that in a room full of artists and you're not a visual artist yourself you're a PR expert in a room full of visual artists it's like I've got my whole pick of like 500 people in there that I could follow um, but the one person that I'm going to follow is the one person that stands out that is different that does 
provide value but literally like literally you do because for for certainly for visual artists it's like one of the hardest things that most artists struggle with is getting getting recognition and a lot of that is being featured in different places it can be really huge for an artist to get featured in a in a publication or on tv or something like that and then when those questions come up there's instead of like an artist who might have done it talking about it there's who is going to have some good tips but it's better to default to the expert in the room um, and just yeah just by being that unique voice in that room that's that's completely different to everyone else is is where you really stand out yeah I think that's always been one of the things that I have liked to do in my kind of PR career it was always like where can I take somebody and put them somewhere where they shouldn't belong mm. but it actually fits really well and so that was kind of something I'd always do with my clients or the people I work with is it's thinking like outside of where you should maybe think you should be because I think people always automatically try and go for the obvious to so say with me right you might go oh I need to be front page of PR week and I'm like but I don't want I don't I'm not trying to sell to the audience of PR yeah. weeks that's other PRs so if I'm on that that is literally just to stroke my ego that's it whereas if I get in Courier magazine for example which was that was like a goal of mine that was a long like chunk of work to get there and quite a sort of an adventurous journey to get there. But once I was there, I was like, that's my perfect audience. And actually yeah. landing a speaking gig at Courier has done far more for my career than being in Forbes or PR Moment or any of those titles. And it's not that there's anything wrong with those publications. I just think that individuals, even like artists, when I speak to them, they just want to be in art magazines that I've not heard yeah. of. And I'm like, well, what are you trying to do? You want to sell your art, right? You want to sell, I buy art. I don't read art magazines. What do I read? That's where you need to be going. And I think particularly for very kind of like highbrow artists, they can't think beyond getting into a very exclusive art magazine. They think that's just going to tip their career over. And there's definitely a time and place for those publications. But if your objective is to sell to the mass consumer audience, then those aren't the titles for you. Yeah, I think that's so interesting. We've talked about that a bit recently, actually, how there's almost like, yeah, two types of people that you can have as your audience. And it generally kind of follows quite a similar pattern, especially with creatives, where as a creative, you'll start your social media platform, whatever. And the, the people you'll target will generally be people who are just like you, your, like your peers in your space. So if you're a painter, you'll probably find the first few hundred followers you get are other painters. They're not people who are actually going to buy your work. And I think like photographers do the same as well like they'll just target other photographers and basically just be like this circle they'll basically create a little community of just photographers that they're taking pictures and each of them are liking each other's things but they're not actually making any money from that and I think that's where the the shift really happens is when you start to look at well who would buy my products like it's not going to be my peers it's going to be like my audience my consumers like a different kind of people and I think that's what you do really well is put people like kind of steer people in that direction and help people yeah be in the right rooms to actually sell rather than to just kind of raise their ego yeah I think one of the best things we ever did as a business Courier had this like live workshop and there was loads of small business owners selling products it was like somebody doing independent denim somebody else who was like who it was like mean mail was there she was doing her cards it was all these like really cool brands that as a service provider I wanted to be sat alongside and we basically paid for our stand and I had my book on pre-sale and my 52 PR tips. And we basically had a sign up saying 15 minutes free PR and branding advice. So there was all these different products. And then us as a little service business sandwiched in the middle. 
And I remember a few people at the time were like, why are you doing that? You're a service business. Like, why do you want to be seen as a brand? And I was like, 100% I want to be seen as a brand. Like, we want to work with creative entrepreneurs. Like, that is 100% the right space for us to be seen in. And we literally had queues all day of people just coming for free advice. Um, I'm not a, a big enough business to tell you what the conversion rate of that new business <laughs> like price was. But it was basically a few hundred quid to have that table. And in terms of like pre-sales just of the book, we definitely did that. We break even that day. Don't necessarily know about um, like conversion long-term, but it's just sort of trying to encourage business owners to think differently, whether you're a service or an actual physical product of like, how can you place yourself in those opposite spaces? Because it doesn't mean that you don't belong there. And I think that's a, it's a bit of a mindset shift for people. Yeah, and I suppose a lot of that comes down to, as you are saying there, how you brand yourself. And I think that's something that creatives can often struggle with, especially if it's just just you creating it. Um, what kind of things do you recommend to creatives as ways to start branding yourself, to start positioning yourself in the market for the people that you want to attract? I think it's always starting with your business objectives. Like that's always my first answer to everything. So are you, if you're a product, are you trying to get stocked into a retailer? Are you trying to get investment? Are you trying to grow um, your business and attract new talent into your business like there's so many things that you could be doing or it could just literally be like I just need to make my first sale like there's so, so many things on that spectrum get that kind of plotted out and then build it kind of accordingly we have a kind of step-by-step -step process that we do on brand or PR where you kind of look at your values you look at your target audience you look where they're playing so on that PR side it might be what magazines what podcasts what tv shows I mean, like when I do, um, when I comment on Netflix shows, for example, they are always my most popular posts because it's tapping into popular culture and people are finding something to connect with you. Um, and for me, I guess I feel quite safe in that um, Adrienne worked with me on my brand palette. So obviously it's on my office shelves in the background. It weaves through every product that we make. It weaves through my personal feed on Instagram. And I kind of know that we're all about being like modern and fresh and fun and educating. So for me, if I start to think about creating content or doing something that doesn't fit into those pillars, then it's not right. And I think with personal brand, people think it's about being really personal. And I always say like, just show a bit of your ankle. It's not about showing your family <laughs> or your private life or your kids. It's just showing a bit of who you are. So what you like outside of work can be something that people really connect with and you can link it to your job especially in the creative space like we're all influenced so much by other creatives so put the spotlight on other people and share their stuff about how that influences you and bring that to your audience and actually Adam you did a really good one after you and I spoke last summer where you did a photograph on LinkedIn about you growing tomato plants in lockdown yeah. and the similarities of that and growing social media channels and I was like that's the perfect example of someone doing a kind of personal brand post because it gave us a, like, a little view of your, your roof terrace. We saw like a photo of your tomato plants, which was very impressive. So we got an insight into what you do outside of your day to day. It was a photograph. So it's demonstrating your photography skills. Although I'm sure that was just a quick snap rather than a staged <laughs> <laughs> stage shot. But just in general, it just gave me like an insight into who you are as a person. And I think that's what's what's missing sometimes is people are so focused on selling they actually stop sharing who they are yeah and I think as well when people first get started like sharing bits about themselves they instantly think as you were kind of saying there, it's like 
oh, I need to literally be talking on live, like have my face in front of the camera talking at people for ages. And I think that becomes so intimidating that it just stops people from even starting. Can I jump in? Like how, how much of PR should be selling? Because it, it feels to me like it's never, it's never directly selling, right? Like your PR should be a story. It should be about you and it should be generating interest rather than, because I know on the marshmallow example that like it directly impacted and you've got the stats to show like this went up 400% or whatever it was. Um, so a sale sales can be a result, but it wasn't like, it wasn't like that PR opportunity was like, um, buy these CBD marshmallows. They cost 1499. You can buy them from WH Smith or whatever. So in answer to that question, actually, I think it's diverting back to the difference between advertising, marketing and PR. Um, and there's a girl I actually met on Clubhouse called Jade Roberts, who did, um, and this is very like top line sort of overview, but advertising is essentially telling people like, this is a good product. This is why you should buy it. Marketing is where you're actually doing the more selling elements of it. And PR is more compelling. So it's like creating that emotion, that impact. And that's a really broad brushstroke of the differences. But it also leads into, I think, a bigger thing of the difference between PR and publicity, right? So publicity is the media relations part of getting physically into the press, which is just one part of PR. But PR stands for like public relations. That could be anything to do with writing a speech, um, organizing an event, your SEO, your brochures, your marketing copy, working with a photographer. Like, public relations is actually such a broad term and even in today it's kind of moving more into controlling a bit of media budget or doing ad spend you know it used to be kind of sort of uh, blogger blogger networking and now it's influencer marketing it's constantly evolving all the time um so I guess in terms of like how much of your PR should be selling I guess it's a more of a broader in terms of your bigger marketing campaign how much should you be selling and I think it's always that point of you need to be selling to the point that it makes you feel uncomfortable and then still keep on selling a bit more. Because particularly for the British people out there, the Americans don't struggle with this as much, but the Brits, we really struggle to sell ourselves. Like we talk about the elevator pitch, which actually we don't even have elevators in the UK. It'd be a lift, right? But all <laughs> Americans have got their elevator pitch nailed. Like they will walk into a room and be like, I've got this, I got that, I got this award. Like, look at me. And then as a British person, we either fumble our way for almost like a dissertation of our biography or we are like I'm Lucy I'm a PR expert and you're like whoa like you literally have given me no room like no kind of intrigue there so I think weirdly as well I found personally from working with a lot of entrepreneurs it's not uh, it's not the stuff that you do that actually you think is going to sell so yes sometimes PR does translate into sales um, and with PR in the sense of like direct publicity. So sometimes you might get into the Daily Mail or the Sunday Times style and you will see your numbers rocket. And other times, nothing at all. And, and that's why PR is so hard to measure, right? Because one person could get on BBC business and, and I've had this where a client um, literally hit their monthly sales target in a week after being on a BBC business slot. But they've been featured in the Times, in the business section of the Times three times, nothing happened. But yeah, another person could be in the times and it could do, make their sales skyrocket. There's kind of sort of no rhyme or reason to it sometimes. It's just the lay of the land. It could be how busy the newsday is. It could be how busy that paper is, what segment it got. Um, and also like that's the, the CBD marshmallow story that you mentioned, David. Like 
I was pitching that for months. And then all of a sudden, everybody was doing CBD. So by the time the Daily Mail had run it, I'd probably pitched to them using various different angles for about nine months. And then they ran it. And then because of that, then this morning picked it up because they read, see what's on trend. So it's really, I knew it was a good story, but I had to keep waiting for the right news hook. So it's always that, why now? Why now? Why is it a good story? Why now? And so it's all, sometimes you have a good story and you have to just sit and hold it until you know it's the right moment and then you go. Yeah, so you you talked about um, us not having confidence, especially as Brits. Is that why you called your book Hype Yourself? The, originally, when I won the book proposal challenge to get my book published, it was called something really Ron Seal, like um, how to do DIY PR or something really. And she was like, no, you need your, you need your kind of lean in. You need your, you know, all the kind of award-winning best-selling business books they've all kind of got that two-word catchphrase it took me weeks to try and think of the title I actually started writing the book way before I'd got the title and I actually spoke to um, my brother's girlfriend who works in branding and I sent her a list of like um, words that I thought I could use she sent me a list of words back and one of them had the word hype in it and I was like, yeah, actually, we don't need a self-help book for businesses. We need a self-hype book. And it's coming out in January when all the other books come out around like mental health, like this could work really well. So that was kind of why Hype Yourself came about. And then actually after we settled on it as a name, I realized that actually it's quite a good brand. Um, so now it's kind of, it's going to continue its journey. That's cool. um, and I'm I'm going to sort of split the word out. So that's going to be more my high-end consultancy for startups and Hype Yourself is going to become way more of an academy and DIY PR and branding for small business owners. I really like the fact that you kind of seek out help from other people rather than just trying to do everything yourself and getting those opinions from other people. Because I know quite often on social media, if you've got an idea, you'll put it out to the audience to see what they think. How important do you think that is to get audience feedback and how much of it do you kind of take on board compared to what you actually think you should be doing? Uh, I use it a lot. Um, I use it a lot for language because what I think might be somebody's PR challenge isn't necessarily how they would describe it. So actually there's a, my favorite tool is Mentimeter. Uh, it's, it's a free tool and there's a cloud, a word cloud app on it. So you can ask a question like what's your biggest PR challenge and everybody can input um, up, you know, however many words you want to give. So now I have a, a, a word cloud, which has probably had about 500 people enter it. So I know all the words that they would use when they're talking about their PR challenges. And then I can use that to kind of serve back to them when I'm talking about what it is that PR solves, because it, it, then it's more of a match. What, what are some that, that jump out that you remember? Confidence, time, knowledge, not knowing what to say. Mm. Those are the big generally the big things so there's certain things so like with the book the book was the opposite of what everybody wanted everybody wanted a book on how to pitch to a journalist which is just publicity I was like you all need to know about PR strategy nobody is interested in PR strategy like when I was trialing out like different courses nobody bought the strategy course which to me I was like this is insane like this is the foundations of Everybody just wants to do the fun, creative bit and pitch to a journalist. I'm like, actually, if you do all of this other stuff, it will be so much better for you. And there's all those kind of analogies like, you know, you don't, if you're going to train for a marathon, you don't just put your shoes on and run a marathon. Right? And it's kind of the same with like publicity and branding. Like you don't just create a fucking logo and go, I've got a brand, which is 
literally me and Adrian's pet hate when someone emails <laughs> can I have a logo no get a font get a font first what um so it's like getting those kind of foundations of your house built and then it will be so much easier and more powerful and the return on investment will be bigger and better I mean don't even get me started on people who are like oh, I just went onto one of those insert website here and paid somebody and it was only five quid and I got my logo and you're like, that basically will have like no use for you as a business long-term. Like it's just putting a plaster on a fix, but it's not going to be useful to you. But that's, I guess, people who don't fully understand the, the value and the importance of brand. And sometimes with those people, you can't really teach them. That's, they, don't, they don't value it and that's cool. It's the same with probably the stuff that you guys work on. Like I am photographers generally love me because I always wang on about how important photography is for your brand and for publicity. Um, so photographers are always like, yes, but I'm like, it's, it's, I'm not doing it to make friends with photographers. It's true. Like for so many reasons, if you don't have a decent headshot, you're ruining your own brand. Yeah. Visuals are so important. Um, I've done a few podcasts and not shared them just because I can't, I can't put it on my feed because they're, their presentation, like it's been a great interview, but their presentation, it just, it would make me look so budget. Um, and it's, it's such a heartbreaker because you, you sort of think, well, I've spent this time with this person, but their, their branding is so crap. And then, then you can kind of have the difficult conversation of like trying to explain to them what, what good branding should be. Um, and I, yeah, visuals are so important and it's, it's overlooked by so many people. I, I suppose they get caught up with the, the day to day, running of the actual business that they don't think about how to present it. I did a, a learning course with David Hyatt from the D lectures. Like Adrian and I went together and it was all about email marketing. And he was basically talking about how you should spend a grand on a designer to create the header of your newsletter. And if you do, and he basically did the maths on it, which I'm not going to be able to reiterate in this uh, podcast, but essentially it was like breaking it down per pence for how many emails you send out, how many people receive it. And if you think of the equivalent of getting a piece of direct mail in the post and how much you would design that, why would you not invest in like electronic design that's going to potentially hit thousands of people on your email list? And it was, I guess it was like that equivalent for me when he was like shouting out the importance of like branding and good design and photography in your newsletters. I was kind of like, Yes, David. I kind of wanted to, <laughs> wanted to go and kiss him um, because I think it's just so undervalued. It is so important. And I think that's one thing that we've always done in our businesses is always try to make things look as good as possible, even like when they're not. Like when you're first getting started, your products and stuff aren't going to be the best. Like they're going to get better over time. But one thing you can do is make them look as good as possible because it's effectively someone's going to come to it have one look at it and then make that decision based on like basically the cover of the book of like are they going to pick it up and it's like that's literally what everyone does all the time with everything in life you take one look and then you quickly make the decision are you going to go for it or not yeah we do judge a book by its cover we do judge a book and actually we judge a book by its thumbnail and people don't often think about thumbnails it's the same with like logos on avatars on instagram it's like maybe you don't need to worry about having your full name maybe just pick it look at facebook and twitter they don't have the whole word they just have an icon think uh, think about that but people are so concerned with always trying to get everything in so yeah when you're thinking like of your icon for your social media channels or your book cover people don't often think about the thumbnail image 
But that is essentially the most important one because that's where everybody's buying Dude, a book. Dude, I can predict how many followers an account's going to have now. When I get likes on Instagram, I go to my notifications and you know how, how you scroll down. You see each individual person's um, little icon. There's, there's certain ones that I ignore and then there's certain ones that I'll go, oh, that looks like an interesting person and I click through and it's all down to the how they captured you with that tiny little circle. You're listening to Creative Rebels, the podcast for creatives. If you're enjoying this episode, please consider subscribing and sharing this podcast in any way that you can. That is so important. And I find that exactly the same. Like I will go down and yeah, you just know what's going to be a good account by how much effort they've put into that. Because I think if someone has that mentality of like, well, I'm going to look good. Because obviously like Instagram's one as well, like thumb, like thumbnail, but then you've got fucking like favicom, like tiny little thing of like judging something that when you're like half a centimeter wide how's that going to be perceived and i think people make big mistakes of yeah as you said lucy trying to fit too much stuff in when you see people who've got like the full name of their business or something kind of like across it and it's like they've got a long word and it's in a script font so actually (laughs) when it's that small (laughs) it's just a little blurry mess no to script font (laughs) and even to the level that if i make a an instagram like my profile picture it will look so weird at full resolution because I'll over sharpen it. So then when it shrank down, it looks right. It's that little attention to detail that's really going to set you forward. And I think if you can imply that into every little aspect of what you do, just having that little bit more effort, just making mm. everything just like not a rush, just like that's good, that's good, that's good, getting all those things sorted. And it will take a long time. I think there was also a lot of pressure to oh, I've just started this business. I need to get everything sorted straight away. Whereas actually, I think of like the amount of rogue renditions our websites have had over the years and like <laughs> logo tweaks and like like everything changes. And it, that's fine. You don't have to have everything right out the bat because you've got the next however many years are left in your life to keep evolving this and keep growing it. Yeah, 100%. And I think when it comes to like the headshot bit as well, actually, you're, you're, it was funny. I, today I was going through your Instagram feed when you like send a headshot over to see what kind of headshots you took. So I was like, oh, do you need it on a plain background or yeah. do you need a color one? And I was thinking about the photo you did of Emma Gannon and mm-hmm. how she's so well proportioned in that frame that she can just have it on her Instagram or she could have that as an avatar and the framing of it fits so well. And that's the bit that a lot of people do wrong as well. They go, they really zoom in or they really, they go up top and it's like just a few simple things. Like I'm sat here today with a sculpted um, pottery reinvented box under my laptop. So you're not looking up my nose whilst we talk today. And it's like just a few little hints and hacks like that just centering yourself in the middle of the Mm -hmm. screen can make such a difference to how professional you look like nobody else well actually everybody knows now that I have got a cardboard box under my laptop but whilst you're like recording it no one sees that you know so so in reading the book I realized how little we've ever done for our businesses in terms of PR it was it was a real revelation actually and I think after about the sixth or seventh time that we'd done tv stuff we actually just stopped doing it because whenever you whenever we get approached by a tv it's like oh we've got absolutely no budget but our show is viewed by five billion million people and you're like and in in the early days that was enough to win us over we were like oh great let's we're gonna have our our business featured on whatever sky news or whatever it would be then after doing 
yeah, well, like I say, like probably six or seven different TV appearances and literally having zero business outcomes come from them, no increase in sales, no increase in anything. Um, we absolutely stopped doing them. But I guess that's probably we were just approaching them in the wrong way. We were responding to what we were being asked to do by a TV company rather than them coming to us and saying, we want to feature you, which I guess is a very different uh, kind of ball game. Yeah. And I also think it's what is, so if that, they say they've got 5 million audience, that's great. Is that 5 million your target customer? And if it is off the back of that TV show, what's the next bit of their journey? And it was the same when I launched my book and every, every time anybody's kind of launching any kind of product or service, it's like, what's that customer journey? So yes, you can make this loud noise and bring everybody to you. But there's on the flip side of that, some people, their businesses collapse after being shown on TV because they don't have the website infrastructure in place to handle that amount of traffic. So it's actually, it can be quite a serious problem that people get this splash and then you know, it goes nuts in a way that actually, you know, forced them to collapse. There's quite a lot of famous um, instances where like Oprah Winfrey would visit these kind of small independents or like food shacks across America. And then they would then collapse because they couldn't handle the traffic like coming to visit them. <laughs> so it's not always a good thing, you know? Um, so I would just say it's always about like, who is your, knowing who your audience is and what journey you want them to go on. And I've been a victim of this as myself. Like when the book came out, um, I kind of had a plan to like build this sort of product ecosystem, if you like, behind the book. So people would buy the book and then there was a journey. And actually life threw a curveball at me at that time. So I wasn't doing what I needed to do on the business. It was literally like just get, get, them, get enough kind of income in to cover the mortgage whilst my son was in and out of cardiac surgery. And then people would suddenly come to me like, I've read your book and um, what can I buy? And I'd literally be like, uh, nothing. Um, so I just sort of had this sort of queue of people wanting to work with me and me going, uh, yeah, um, do you want to just, do you want to just wait? And then when I've got something to sell you in my shop, I'll let you know, which is <laughs> the worst thing. So actually, I mean, I spoke to a girl the other day who runs a VA service. She's got more work than she can manage, but wanted to speak to me about doing PR. And I was like, do not talk to me. Do not spend any money on me. Spend money on growing your team and getting your systems in place. And then when you can absorb more work, do the PR. Because if you can't absorb it, there's literally no point in it. If you've got more work than you can handle, you don't need PR. Like you absolutely don't. Yeah, I mean, um, Daniel Priestley's book Oversubscribed is is the the book that we recommend like ad nauseum on the show, and and that is the ideal position for anyone to be in is where they've got more clients than they have work. Yes, if you have something to sell them, but there's no point getting oversubscribed if you don't have your product sorted out, which is where I was at. So being oversubscribed is great if you have your product sorted out. <laughs> yeah, I think this is quite evident on social media as well, where lots of people want to be famous but they don't actually have the product or service to provide people. It's like, yes, you've got all these people, but then if there's nothing there to direct them to. And I, I think that is really interesting what you said before as well about how like there, there needs to be that customer journey. And I think that can even be just diverting people to a social media account. I think that's like just something to nod them in a direction to help find you and go forward. Because obviously if they follow you there, then it's like, okay, well now I can like, I don't have to worry about that right now, but I can then flip that into something later. Because I think that's where um, when you see people like on Love Island where they've literally come up, it flashes up with their Instagram handle. And then I remember watching it a few years ago and you could literally, it came up and I went on someone's account 
and I just kept pulling down and refreshing it and they would just jump by like a thousand followers every refresh and it was because they'd had that little diversion whereas you see other tv shows where they don't give that person's name or that Instagram account and then you look at it and you're like this is a big show but these people have got like no followers because it's not actually been diverted into that area and you have to actually go and look for it yeah I'd say even get people off your socials and get their emails because like, you know, especially at the moment, like um, there's what's it called? Twitter spaces, which is being, being built on Periscopes. All these people have spent years building Periscope. It's like, that's it. Your accounts are now gone. So I think a lot of us at the moment, like we've all connected through Instagram. And I think, but what happens if Instagram suddenly builds the, its version of Clubhouse on top of Instagram or, you know, whatever sort of happens next? So for me, it's actually trying to convert people to then come over, even though I don't do anything other than email them once a month to be like, hi, here's some, here's some PR and branding tips or podcasts or things to like, mm. whatever. I'm kind of keeping them warm, as they call it, with my monthly touch point. But I'm not selling to them at the moment because I don't have anything to sell, but I'm just having my own data so that if all the social media channels collapse tomorrow, I've still got some audience. I think yeah. we all invest so much time on personal branding on instagram and i'm like just take a week off instagram and do a newsletter like <laughs> be so much more efficient for your business so what did you do when you're in that stage where you'd got all of this attention and then you were like i don't actually have this product to sell you what was your next move in that situation when i left corporate pr land i wanted to set up a pr agency for small business owners and i basically replicated what i knew for small businesses which didn't work and then i was taking on projects but i was the face of the business which then having two children very much amplified that that is not a sustainable business model, but people were buying into me as a person. So I was trying to have it to really like work out how I could make it all work, which is why I've now recently realized, which we all know that one size fits no one. And I talk about it in the book so much, but I'm only just kind of really seven years into doing my business, learned it for myself, which is now why I'm splitting my business into the two audiences, I guess, because for me, I can't charge, say like a, a single mum on a workshop for 35 quid, the same sort of service level that I'm giving to a startup corporate tech package. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't work. So I had to kind of really split out what it is that I'm doing for who. Um, but also I'd say the pandemic has kind of sped up that uh, freelance collective way of working. It was already kind of there. But now, rather than me doing all of the work, because I like to still do it, I still like to have a foot in. I like to flex that muscle. I take on higher fee projects so I can bring on senior freelancers so I can just hand the work over to them. When I set up my business, the fees were so low from some of the clients I was working with. I could only afford a junior. And actually, that was probably my biggest business mistake is thinking I'll get juniors and train them. Whereas actually, if the client has a bigger budget, it's a better return on investment to use the seniors because they get it done quicker and they know what they're doing. And I don't need to I don't need to handhold them. I can basically just say, here's the press release. Here's the media list. Go. Um, so it's a really kind of almost like a Ford factory way of working now that I will have like a journalist that does the writing and then a publicist that does the selling. And I kind of sit at the top doing the strategy and then maybe I get a junior in as an assistant. Um, so that's kind of all on the WERN side now. So now I can say I can take on projects because I've got a great crack team of freelancers. And then Adrian and I are working on hypeyourself.com at the moment and building that as a separate brand. So it will be a more fun, like playful version, but that will be 
the kind of the DIY products that I wanted to do, which is less of my face. And then probably in the middle, there'll be like a do it with you program where I work with a small number of individuals where it's more tailored and feedback. And I can launch that around moments of my life where it's, it works. So not summer holidays, for example, when I've got many people around. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's been, it's a really, it's a, weird to me, like how in seven years, how much my business has iterated from having full-time staff to full-time freelancers to just me to now me and probably all together we've probably got about 10 to 15 different freelancers we use at any different point and whereabouts do you find these freelancers do you know what finding good freelancers is really hard um and i particularly want to get outside of my network i don't just want to be getting a cookie cutter white pr girl with blonde hair called hannah sort of no offense to anybody called hannah is a white but i just <laughs> feel like you know there is a real lack of diversity in the pr industry and in branding um Adrian's like French and dyslexic so he has his own his own other issues when it comes to like working and communicating so we have to basically employ someone to write and respond to his emails we kind of badge his emails up quite obviously that he's a dyslexic now and it's fine because they're there for the visual not for his his email technique um but we try and use platforms like the dots I find are really good for showcasing um talent and I try to kind of take um recommendations from people where possible um but yeah I'm actually really open to hearing from freelance and um, brand creatives um to get in touch because we're always looking to expand our network particularly as we niche so it might be one week I'm working with a future of retail and the next week I'm working with future of office and then the next week I'm working with a food brand or a gin brand. So getting people who are experts in those different areas is always really interesting to me. So as someone like who's specialized in a certain service, how do you decide what industry to hit there? Because obviously like there's so many different industries that could benefit from PR. How do you decide actually these are the ones I'm gonna target, these are the ones I'm not gonna target? Yeah, it's basically what I like. <laughs> so um, I generally haven't ever worked in like financial services or property because I'm like, that is my Achilles heel, like football. There'll be literally no point, sport, no point. Um, I have no, no kind of passion for that, which is kind of why I've lended myself more to the creative industries. And people within that will say, well, how, why don't you niche in food and drink or beauty or fashion? Um, and that's where I go back with her because I take people out of the places where they shouldn't be. Um, so for me, it's it's more like the journalists that write about interesting founders or small businesses or entrepreneurs. And also thinking beyond just that, getting somebody into the fashion pages of Stella magazine. It's like, okay, what about a podcast? What about pitching you to be a guest speaker? What about you hosting a workshop or pitching to have a brand partnership and thinking a bit more holistically about the PR so for me it generally it kind of comes down to who I like it's always sort of been like that so there's a bit of tech and there's a bit of um what have we got at the moment I mean it's a whole mix at the moment um but increasingly it seems to be kind of creative entrepreneurial profiles that we are working on across the back brand and the PR side could you tell us about rain check because you you didn't initially want to work with them did you yeah no it was like my nightmare Davinia emailed me and was like <laughs> do you want to have an email I run a financial services business it's about investing and I was literally like no way um and I but she sounded really cool on the email so I was like look I'll meet you for a coffee she was a friend of a friend I used to work with somebody who'd set the business up with her so I was like let's go for a coffee and we'll chat and then she just started talking about 
what had happened to her um, through her career journey from starting off being like not only one of the only women, but the only black woman on like the investment floor of the company she worked in and the kind of decisions that she saw being made at a senior level that just weren't resonating with her and the the struggles that she was facing. Um, So she essentially like set up Raincheck to be like this financial services business to solve the challenges that women face when it comes to investing, which I was like, oh, I get it because financial services don't speak to me, but I probably need to be investing. But I didn't think it was for people like me because it's not ever the branding and the advertising of it all doesn't connect. Um, And it just felt really poignant to me that she didn't want to just do it for women. It was, she had a real kind of skew for women of color. And I felt really sort of honored to be able to get to help her tell that story. So with her, again, we didn't like write a press release and wang it out to 300 people because that is an error. We just wrote all the articles that she wanted to speak about. And we waited for that why now moment and then pitched off the back of that. And she's another classic example where she did get in some of the big kind of finance and tech titles, but it was actually like maybe speaking on a podcast, but the audience was specifically female founders or women or mothers or women of color. And that really translated into sales for her. So I think it's definitely about having that like targeted approach on who you go to. But yeah, it was it was a real learning curve for me that I was like, oh, I don't want to work on finance, but actually she takes a really creative approach to finance. So that's where we connected. Have you seen any patterns of like where people succeed the most in terms of a written article or video or voice, anything like that? Because yeah, it'd be interesting to hear because I feel like for me, I feel like I connect with people most when I can like see them and hear them because I feel like I've more of a human connections happening there. But what, what's your experience on that? I'd say it's different across the board, which is again, why kind of one size fits nobody, but, and it also depends on somebody's skill set, right? So some people might be brilliant writers and thinkers, but completely crash under the pressure of a podcast, for example, because it's too much for them or vice versa. Like somebody might be a brilliant speaker, but writing could just be horrific for them. And there's obviously always ways around this, like you can get a ghostwriter. Um, But it's really down to that individual to like try it um, and see what works for them. But in answer to your question, I guess for me, it's been the same thing. Like when I do speaking or live um, workshops or podcasts, that typically is like when I hear back from people and they say, Oh, I heard you on this. or I saw you talking at that. I I can sort of recognize that pattern. Um, I don't feel like as much somebody will be like, Oh, I saw you in um, the times, but, but then there's, there's always exceptions to the rule because once somebody did see me in the Times and he became quite a lucrative client of ours or probably one of our biggest clients that we're working with at the moment because she then passed us on to her husband, she found the book. The book was being sponsored on Kindle that day. And she was like, oh, I'm, I'm, she's French. She was like, I need a brand. So she came to me to help her hype yourself. I was like, no, you don't need PR, you need branding. So she went to work with Adrienne and then she then passed him on to her husband who's got like multiple businesses so out of that book just being sponsored on kindle that was kind of like three or four huge creative campaigns so sometimes like i think new business leads come in from all different places for everybody and you just need to kind of track what's working for you and then do more of that yeah we talk about planting flags on this show all the time and 
anything can be a flag from an Instagram post to a, a mural in the street to a, a an appearance on a TV show to an article that's being written about you. They're all flags and they're, they're there to be discovered and you never know who is going to discover them because you might have an audience of 300 people. But if the person that discovers you is a decision maker, then that's then that's the important thing. Um, and really, like numbers mean nothing. It's 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 having a meaningful following of, of people that actually want to take action, that actually want to be patrons of what it is that you do. Um, those those are your meaningful followers. In fact, um, I think it was Amrit who um, said there's there's followers and there's advocates and what you want is advocates. Yeah. And I think that's that's really true. One thing you've done really well in your business that I'd, I'd love to sort of hear your opinion is you're you're able to you're able to turn clients down. You don't work with people that you don't want to work with. Um, and you've said that you don't pitch as well, um, which it, like yeah. currently, like there's one of our businesses where, Very where controversial. pitching takes up so much time. Like how have you got to that stage? Is it, is it literally because you've, you're so good at PRing yourself that, that people just want to work with you because they've heard so much about you? <laughs> yes, that's the answer. What a wanker do I sound? No, Come on, hide yourself. Um, <laughs> no, I would say, I would say it's the type of client that we are working with. So typically, as you move up the corporate ladder, you do have to pitch currently. There are some global brands that do it differently. But when I was pitching, that was at big agency level. So you'd be pitching for maybe a hundred grand piece of work. And um, we're not pitching for work that big. And we wouldn't because that's not the sort of company we want to support. Yeah, so we wouldn't pitch for an 100 grand piece of work. So that's not the sort of business that we want to work on. So I guess we are lucky, in inverting commas, that the size of businesses that we work with typically aren't looking for competitive pitches. And yes, there is an element, I guess, from the book and from me raising my profile and Adrienne's profile on social media channels and that of the business that we showcase our work. And a lot of people, I think when it comes to branding, you should be choosing somebody on the visual style that connects with you. And it's funny because we showcase all the colorful stuff. Actually, we do do more kind of dulled down, like um, more pastel palettes. We just don't always show it. So I've recently just set up a new kind of, I've actually split out all our social media feeds because I was like, this is, it's not working for me. So the word agency is now basically just going to be my billboard feed. And I don't care about followers on that or engagement. I'm not following anybody other than me and Adrienne. It's just literally to showcase the work that we do. So if they like the work that we do, we will do a call with them and we will send them a proposal, which is basically based off the pricing brochure that we already have. So that sorts the wheat from the chaff in the first place anyway, because they'll download our pricing brochure and see if that's a price they can afford or not. So that automatically stops the people who are like I've got 50 pounds and I'd like a logo and a full brand please <laughs> no. um and then on the PR side I, I have been invited to pitch um and I just I'm like I've got enough work coming in like probably a lot of it is off the back of the book um and because I don't play in PR spaces I typically play in like startup entrepreneur spaces so people will hear me talk about it and I can be a bit kind of like no bullshit and a bit, I think PR agencies are great for having a good big team and a creative wheel behind you. But I think some of the mistakes that you get there is 
you meet the head of the business and then after they pitch to you you've got a junior team member who probably has only just learned how to pitch to a journalist before they then move into account management and they're managing the team and then like when I part of the reason I left is I was an account director and I wasn't even doing client work anymore which is the bit that I actually like doing I was just managing spreadsheets and new business lists and I'm like I'm not really interested in that like, I want to still learn as a publicist and a PR so I'm constantly doing like PR courses and reading other PR books and going to like literally like lectures for juniors and I'll be like the oldest senior person in the room but I don't ever want to stop learning and I genuinely like love it so for me I think when a client does well I really care like when I get somebody in the paper and it's just because I connected them with somebody on Twitter like for me that's the best feeling like I've helped create that so yeah, I don't. If I'm not going to pitch for somebody to work with me, like like they they can either want that or you know find someone else. That's cool. We we talk a lot about Instagram on this show, um, and we probably don't talk about Twitter enough. Um, that's that's your kind of main go to platform, certainly when it comes to um, reaching out to journalists, right? If you want to be friends with journalists, yes, it's the easiest way. I wouldn't ever pitch to a journalist on Instagram or LinkedIn, but Twitter for some reason it's like a more acceptable format. And actually, most journalists will have um, their email address in their Twitter bio or they'll say something like, I'm open to DMs. Um, there's a hashtag journo request, which we talk about quite a lot. But I, I've helped a lot of people get national broadcast, you know, TV, radio, press coverage just from responding to a hashtag journo request. And actually, the trick with that, and this again, where the Brits really get it wrong, they'll be like, oh, I can answer that here's my email. And you're like, no, no, the journalist is busy and they're asking for someone to be a case study of this. Tell them everything in that one tweet or email them everything. And that's how you get through. But when you're saying, oh yeah, I could, I could be perfect for this. Here's my email. It's like, that's not, you won't get, you won't get through with that. Yeah. Here's some work that you have to do. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. In my world, like the journalists are like up there with the PR gods, like, they will get whatever they want from me as quickly as possible. Like it's kind of like how I was around like dating boys in my twenties. Like literally my whole world revolves around getting them. (laughs) Yeah. I I think we have a lot of people that listen to the show that um, are not keen to put themselves out there on social media. Um, They don't like algorithms. They don't like having to worry about hashtags. They don't like all of that stuff. And through reading Hype Yourself, I really sort of thought here is, here is an alternative if really you don't want to do the whole Instagram or whatever social media thing, then the goal at the end of the day is if you've got a business, then you need attention. Um, And so one way to get that attention is social media, which, I mean, you mentioned in the book, it does form part of your strategy, um, bringing that in there. But if you did want to sort of ditch that, you can just go the traditional PR route. Yeah, sometimes I think social media is a distraction. And actually, when I think about the stuff that's worked really hardest for myself or my clients, it has been like key workshops or events or conferences or podcasts, for example. So I think it's always good to have a social media handle for yourself and your business, even if it's just a billboard to direct them to your website or to your newsletter or whatever your call to action is. But yeah, I would definitely have a a face on there, even if it's not one that's talking live all the time yeah and i think even back to what we were talking about earlier it's like if that social media platform wasn't cool tomorrow and you spent the last 10 years building the app then it's like that's then disappeared so it's making sure that you've got strength in lots of different areas like i we always talk about the fact that with graffiti life 
we don't get any jobs through social media but they all come from people searching for us on google and the seo that we've done there so it's making sure that who is actually searching for you and are those people going to be looking for the thing that you're actually offering and making sure that you're putting your time and effort into something that is going to last because there's definitely like this idea of i'm starting a new business the first thing i'm going to do before i even start a website is just make an instagram account and just try and speak (laughs) to a couple of people on there and that's before they've even thought about a brand or anything it's just like uh that's well that's obviously how you start a business you just open a social media account yeah and I think there's a whole issue at the moment I I think my most popular post sadly in the last 12 months has been when I talked about copying um and the problem is a lot of small business owners don't trademark their business and it only costs like a few hundred pounds but if you don't do that you could be facing like 20 30 40 50 grand's worth of lawsuit if you have to pursue it but people who have like their whole brand identity completely copied down to color palette, almost to a similar name, to similar products. If you're not getting yourself trademarked, there's literally nothing you can do. So although it's, I think it's hard when you're starting out as a small business owner to think about those things. It's, I'd almost sort of have like a grand where it's like, okay, what legal advice do I need to seek to get myself protected in the long term? What, um, what like financial advice do I need to make sure that I'm protecting myself and my business? Like, am I going to be over the VAT threshold? Like, what do I need to get registered? Like, how am I not getting into trouble with like, HMRC on my taxes? Oh, yeah, I guess HR, if you were looking to work with freelancers or employees, if you're working with a freelancer on a regular basis, you need to actually be very careful about whether that's actually an employee or not. And that's a, another pitfall that people fall into. And you can get into a lot of trouble in that way. So they're the really unsexy bits. I think us as creatives don't like to touch, but can give us so much protection in the long term. So basically I have a, a roster of experts that I work with in skill skill sets that do not appeal to me. Um, and I've actually been sort of burnt, burnt before I kind of took action on a few of those things. So yeah, that would be my biggest piece of advice, actually, before you do any money on your branding or your PR to make sure that you're you're protected as a business. Uh, this has been amazing, Lucy. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge. I have a feeling we're, I don't know what form it will take, but I feel like we'll be collaborating and doing some stuff um, in the future. But um, that'd be nice. I would like to give you a chance to hype yourself. Um, where can people find you online? <laughs> so I'm on almost all social media channels as Lucy Werner PR. And we are in the process of setting up hypeyourself.com at the moment. So you can go and register on there, your interest, if you want to know about DIY stuff. And if you want us to do it for you, then go to thewern.com. Amazing. Brilliant. Thank you so much. Brilliant.